They teach English, they teach history, they teach math, they teach science. But as you get older, you realize that all those subjects are intertwined throughout history. And if you have that common thread, if you can get a hold of that common thread, then you can tie all those subjects together and they actually make more sense because they're a whole story. In Hell Week, your Navy SEAL, we see it on TV and I never believe it, what I see on TV, so I'm going straight to the source. What's the, for you, what was the absolute hardest part? The exercise, the, the thing you had to drill? The, okay, first of all, I wasn't great at anything, right? Okay. So I wasn't the fastest runner, I wasn't the fastest swimmer, I wasn't the fastest at the obstacle course. I was kind of in the middle. And so none of those things were super hard for me to do. But at the same time, I had to go as hard as I could for all those. So for instance, one time I decided on a run that I was going to, it's a timed run. You do a four mile timed run in the sand with boots on. So it's, it's actually not really four miles. It's kind of whatever the instructors want to want to make it that day. And you're worn out. And I decided one day, you know what? I'm going to pace myself. I'm not going to run as hard as I can. I'm going to pace myself, save something for later. So I went out, paced myself, did the run, and failed. Failed the run. And I realized right there, everything I did in that training, I had to do as hard as I could. Now, there were some guys that ran cross-country in high school. Those runs were a joke for them. There were some guys that swam in college. The swims were a joke for them. For me, I had to go hard for everything. So everything had a level of difficulty for me. But at the same time, there was like, I always talk about the fact that some people say, oh, everyone thinks about quitting. And like, I never thought about quitting at really? all. No, not at all. Not in any way. So you were never at the point where like, dude, I got to ring the bell. It's the bell, yeah, right? The Do bell. they have the bell? Yeah, oh, they is have that, the bell. That's not just TV? It's not just TV. And I never... How many people rang the bell, you guess? It's like 80%. Really? Yeah, it's like 80%. Like I, my class started with something like 130 people and we graduated 35. Wow. And li- how many of them were just pure injuries versus will? They gave up willpower. Uh, I don't know. But it was like half know. of them but were most, injuries? You know, most of them are quitters. Really? Yeah, so yeah, most, most people, it's not that they broke their leg. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, hell most no, of them I are quitters. Most of them are quitters. And it's just cold. Well, it's cold. You don't get to sleep. You're tired. Yeah. Yeah. The cold is a, the cold is a big one. And the water. Just the water in general. How cold was it? It's Southern California water, which everyone watched yeah. Baywatch growing up. They think that water's 80 degrees no. like Florida, but it's not. No, sir. It's cold. <laughs> you don't have a wetsuit on, I'm No, assuming. no wetsuits. You get wetsuits during swims, and we used to get crappy old wetsuits. Now the guys get nicer wetsuits, but good on them. Good on How them. many hours are you in that cold water? Depends. I mean, the uh, you do a five-and-a-half nautical mile swim, which is 6.2 statute miles, I think. Anyways, yeah. it took me like four-and-a-half hours to complete yeah. with just swimming. That's cold. Yeah, yeah. But Hell Week, you're basically wet the whole time, cold and wet. How much sleep do you get? The only reason they let you is they'll let you sleep for like an hour. And the only reason they do it, so they can wake you back up again. They, they get you dry like a, like a couple days into Hell Week. So you've been wet, cold, miserable, no sleep for a few days. You've been and you're carrying a boat, you're, you're exhausted. And so then they take you and they put you in a, they, they go, okay, put dry clothes on. So you go put dry clothes on. They're like, okay, you guys, this Hell Week's been too hard. We're going to let you guys sleep for a, a night. So it's and you don't know what you're, you know. Yeah. So then they put you in there, you fall asleep, and then 45 minutes later, they're in there with shooting machine guns and, and blowing whistles and telling you to go right back in the ocean. And oh, so many people quit right there. It's pretty impressive. Really? Yeah, people just yeah. go, hell <laughs> Zach, I know how you love your bed. Yeah. Would you be able to get up out of that? Yeah, I've got pride. Zach says pride. All right, I'm going to try that here at the office. Three days. Some Tommy Bat says Jocko is a beast. 
Raphael has a question for you. If you had to describe the hardest survival training that you ever took, what would it be? Was it that run that you told me about? What run did I tell you about? You were telling me that you held back? Oh, yeah, yeah. This, that was just a normal four-mile time run. Uh, survival, you know, we go through... We go through survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school where you are out in the woods. But the training for the SEALs, everyone thinks about that initial training where you're carrying the boats around and all that stuff. And and that only lasts six months. And honestly, in the SEAL teams, you don't even think about that. Because once you're in SEAL teams, everyone went through that. It's no big deal. That's when the actual hard training starts is when you get to the SEAL teams. Because now it's not just, hey, do push-ups, pull-ups, and climb this rope and jump over that wall. Now it's climb this rope, climb this caving ladder, you know, swim onto, onto this target. And then when you get there, you're cold, wet, and tired. Now think. Right. Now think. Now you got to prosecute a target. Now you got to discriminate between shooting bad guys and good guys. It's, that's a lot harder mentally than just the basic SEAL training, which, again, that's what everyone talks about because it's, it's made public, you know? You can watch yeah. YouTube about Movie it. Movie and but they the, got the but, bell. Yeah, yeah. But the, the actual SEAL training is a lot harder. And when I, I ended up running the training, and when I ran the tra- that kind of training, that more advanced training, that training was hard as hell. That training yeah. was brutal. And, yeah, yeah, that training was brutal. Those boys were ready for combat, though, for sure. What Did you have a specialty? What, were you a sniper, like a, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Did you have different specialties over 20 years? So when I started off, I was what's called a radio man. So I carried the big radio yeah. and talked to aircraft, talked to supporting elements. That's what my job was. And then once I, I got, then I got commissioned as an officer. And once you're an officer, you don't have a specialty anymore. You're in charge of the operations themselves. So did you eventually, that was when you were actually running the training once you became an officer? Yeah, yeah. Did you pull the same tricks they pulled on you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Waking people up? Because I've always wondered, like, being a drill sergeant, are they genuinely, is it all a show? Are they, like, mad? And like, it, or is they just ornery people? Or what is it? Is it a little mix of everything? No, what it is, they're doing their job. Yeah. They're doing their job. They're, they're you know, when you see the Marine Corps drill instructors, the Army drill sergeants, the, the SEAL team instructors, they're doing their job. They're, what they're doing is they're trying to put stress on people. They're trying to put stress on people because combat is stressful. Yeah. And if you don't have people inoculated to stress or you don't have people that leave because they can't handle the stress, then those instructors aren't doing their jobs. Yeah. Hi, I'm Arusha Pires, host of a new podcast called Investing with IBD. Here are a few snippets from the conversations that we're having. Facebook, you know, it's coming back. I was really treating it as a counter trend kind of stock. You have these really fast moving stocks. You want to have a little bit slower moving stocks yeah, also definitely. in your portfolio. What Bill observed after sitting through many market corrections is that the market will come down, but you need to wait a few days and see if there's going to be continued power. And that's where he came up with the follow through day concept. One of the most interesting things is, you know, utilities have actually been very, very strong over the last 52 weeks. The work that we've done on yield curve inversion suggests that after the yield curve inverts, over the next year, utility performance is actually not that good. Come join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's talk. You've been in battle. You've gotten the the Silver Star, Bronze Star. What's something that stood out to you that you remember, will remember, I'm sure you'll remember many things, but is there like just something, a hyper-stressed point, a point where you had to make 
a crazy decision when you were actually in battle? I mean, the, the thing that you, all these elements, all these things that happen, every, one, every time you go out, there's something that's going to happen or there's something that could happen. So you constantly have that on your mind. And I'll tell you, for me, you know, like the first time I ever got into, the first time I ever got shot at, I didn't even know I was getting shot at because I was, we had, no one had any combat experience, including me. And I'm sitting there, I was actually in a Humvee and I'm looking at the Humvee in front of me. It's wearing a, we got five Humvees and we're going somewhere. And I'm looking at the Humvee in front of me and I see, it looks like someone's flipping cigarettes out the window, like little sparks are coming. And I'm hmm. thinking to myself, Who, who's smoking? Like, why is, wait, why is there five or six people smoking in that Humvee right now? Well, it turns out, I realized after I'm thinking about it, I go, oh, those are bullets. We're getting shot at right now. Huh. And it's one of those things where you realize like, oh, this is, this is uh, not a game. Yeah. Did your stress level go, level go through the roof then, or were you able through the training just to stay calm right in the midst of battle? I'll tell you what. I had been in the military for, I'd been in the SEAL teams for like 13 years huh. before I shot my gun for the first time at Bad Guys. Really? And by that time, it was like, uh, taking a glass, taking a drink of water. I mean, I was so ready and yeah. so prepared that, yeah, it was, it was, Where were you the training is great. I was in Iraq. I was in Baghdad. Baghdad. Yeah. So I just saw this movie 12 strong, which is the story of the first, I think they, they weren't Navy SEALs. They were, uh, they were green beret. I think they I were think. green berets. Yeah, and they forces. got dropped there behind the lines, Afghanistan, and they end up on horse. It's like a wild story. I'm not sure how how well Hollywood told the story, but do you think, not to get political, but going to the Middle East has been, they call it the graveyard of empires. Russia was there. Genghis Khan was there. Alexander the Great was there. In the long term, is it sustainable, do you think, and, and you know, it's outside of our hands, is it sustainable for countries like the United States to have a presence there? Are we doing more good than bad? What's your opinion? Well, look at the presence that we kept in countries after World War II. We're still in Germany right now. We're still in Japan right now. You know, so that idea that we can't maintain that is kind of a false concept. We, if, we, if we had the will, then we'd stay there. And it's the same thing with any situation that America gets into. If we have the will, then we can do... Uh, we can do, we can achieve whatever mission we want to achieve. If we lack the will, then it's, it's a lost cause. And, you know, we did a lot of good in Iraq. And I, I didn't fight in Afghanistan, but in Iraq there was, you know, first of all, if you saw, number one, the way that the, the conditions that the people lived under Saddam, and, and we went, I went and walked around inside of buildings that were owned by Saddam, and they had literal torture chambers in them. Really? You know, with meat hooks. It was horrible to see. And to think that, and, and when we got there, the people were so happy. Now, what happened was, you know, there was some, it's hard to fight a war. It's easy to fight a war looking back. We can all see mistakes that were made, but we didn't recognize the emergence of this insurgency in Iraq. And when that happened, we didn't address it properly quickly enough. Eventually we did. And eventually we did a great job. And, you know, when I think back to... How, what did we do right when you say we addressed it correctly? Well, once... So the, the, the major difference was, at first, we were thinking, hey, you know what? There's, there's terrorists here. We'll go capture the terrorists. And then once we capture the terrorists, we'll be okay. Well, 
what it really turned into was an insurgency, which is a little bit different. An insurgency is not just one or two people, it's a movement. Yeah. And the movement, once it started, they started to get financing, they started to get leadership from foreign fighters would come in, you know, Al-Qaeda leadership would come in and started giving them direction and, and giving them leadership, really. And so we didn't recognize that soon enough. Yeah. Because what we thought is if we go out, if we go out and capture or kill the leadership of the insurgency, then the insurgency will die. That's what we thought. And the, the common metaphor that you'd hear is if you cut the head off a snake, the snake will die. And no one argues with that. Why? Because it's factually true. If you cut the head off a snake, it dies. So we thought the insurgency is like a snake. If we cut off the head, it'll die. Well, we cut off many heads. And what we didn't realize that the, the, the insurgency wasn't like one snake. It was like Medusa. Yeah. So every time we cut off one head, there'd be more. So what we had to do was we had to change our strategy, and we eventually did that. We eventually said, okay, we're not just going to go out and get the bad guys. What we're going to go out and do is we're going to take care of the civilian populace inside Iraq, the normal, everyday people that are living in Iraq that were being terrorized. Now, we throw that word around, right? In America, we talk about being terrorized. I'm talking these people were being terrorized. These people were being beheaded. These people were being murdered. These people were being raped, tortured by these insurgents. They didn't want those insurgents there. They were so scared, they didn't know what to do. And eventually, once they realized, once we changed our tactics and changed our strategy to, to make it, instead of fighting the terrorists, we made it, let's secure the populace, let's take care of the people that are there. Once they realized that we were going to take care of them, they started giving us information and intelligence. Mm. Once they started giving us information and intelligence, we could really go out and target the right people, and that's what turned things around. And, and in, the, in the Battle of Ramadi, where, where I fought on my second deployment to Iraq, with the 1-1 AD, you know, a bunch of, bunch of soldiers and Marines. I, I want to make it perfectly clear that I'm not just talking about, you know, the SEALs that I had with me. It's, it's a huge team of, of soldiers and Marines that were fighting on the ground. But they, that city completely changed from a complete war zone to a, to a very peaceful place. Mm. And it spent seven years in, in complete peace, and it was amazing to see. And, you know, the, the, the local populace on the ground there was completely uh, happy that we were there and happy that we got rid of the insurgents. So I've heard people say, and it's not my opinion, but people say, you know, war almost always does more bad than good. And I would say, well, look at World War II. You had to fight Hitler. Do you think these more modern wars, not necessarily Vietnam, but let's talk about the ones that you were involved in personally, Gulf War, first Gulf War and invasion of Iraq. Do you think these are justified wars? I mean, there's always civilians that are being killed, but in the long run, it, do you think it was more steps forward than it was backwards? Well, I can tell you right now, when I see what's going on in the world, you know, there's a, a, a legitimate threat to the, our way of life. Yeah. Our way of life. And what we've done with ISIS now, which, you know, we fought in Al-Ambar province, which is kind of the birthplace of ISIS, which happened after we left. Now, ISIS had started to form. And this, the people that we fought in Ramadi were the same people that eventually became ISIS. But we've done an outstanding job of wiping out ISIS. And is that positive? Absolutely. Is it positive when we were in Ramadi and we were liberating those people? And, and by the way, when I say we, and I talk about the soldiers and Marines, I, I you also got to remember, we were with Iraqi soldiers as well. Right. We were alongside Iraqi soldiers every mission that we did. There was Iraqi soldiers that were fighting for their homeland. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll have somebody say to me, you know, 
you were doing this against the Iraqi people. We were fighting alongside the Iraqi people. Yeah. You know, we, we weren't an occupying force. We were literally side by side with Iraqi soldiers. And so when I see the results of that, when I saw the little girls' schools established inside the city of Ramadi, when I see now, you know, ISIS being wiped out and, you, you know, you hear the horrible stories of, of the way, the things that they did, you know, the Yadizi women that were just raped systematically and children, little girls and boys that are getting, you know, set, that are becoming sex slaves and sold for $2. You know what? Is it okay for me to go out and fight and kill those people? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I just saw in this movie, I think they were talking about, you know, a woman was accused of adultery or something there or reading a book or something. They're stoning them to death. It's like stoning to death. This is, you know, this is a wild, I mean, a horrible way, an ancient primitive way. It's like the world's going backwards. So you think, let's talk about ISIS for a second. I had a talk with some political guys and we did live and people were arguing and Trump and Obama. Do you think the way the U.S. now and Trump's handling ISIS because they're claiming, you know, Donald Trump's like, look, we're winning the battle. Do you think it's because of new policies in the new administration, or do you think it's a carryover from Obama and things like that? No, it's the way that the, ha- the situation's been handled now. It's decentralized command. That's what it is. You know, we write about it in the book, Extreme Ownership. It's, it's decentralized command. It's letting the people that are on the battlefield make decisions on how they're going to handle it. Yeah. And, and that's what happened. And, you know, and that's changed. Uh, is that new under this administration? It yes. wasn't so much under Obama? It wasn't Obama? so much. And, and, you know, he hired, President Trump hired a guy named General Mattis to be the Secretary of Defense. And he's a brilliant guy, a great leader, a guy that's been on the ground, a guy that's, they call him the, the warrior monk. He reads, he's got a personal library of like 7,000 books. Wow. Very smart guy, understands the troops, understands the problem. And he addressed the problem. And he had the freedom of movement to do that on the battlefield, you know, along with his commanders, who he listened to because he understands decentralized command. And yeah, it's been a a great job. And it hasn't really been in the news much, to be honest with you. You don't know that, you know, ISIS has gone from, I think it was 70,000 ISIS fighters. They're down to like 1,000 ISIS fighters. Really? Yeah. They've been, they've been taken out. And, and by the way, yeah, the American forces have been helping, but most of the door-to-door fighting has been done by the Iraqi soldiers, yeah. which is very impressive because they had a long way to go yeah. from, when we, from when we were working with Yeah, them. I posted an Instagram video. I don't know if it was true. It was like Afghanistani or Iraqis being trained to do jumping jacks. Yeah. And I was like, they're not too coordinated, or at least this group isn't. It was kind of a funny video. Uh, let's see. Lots of questions coming in. Somebody said, Chase says, wow, you're talking to a real hero. Yeah, thank you for your service, by the way. I didn't say that no, earlier. No hero, hero. I'll promise you that. Kim Olmeda said General Matt, Mattis is a godsend to put that he was put in the White House. So I asked if you had a mentor? Yeah, let's talk about this for a second. Mentorship. Did you have a mentor before the military and during the military, one or two people that you really see as influential? You know, before the military, n- not anyone that I would single out. Then once I was in the military, obviously I grew up in the SEAL teams, you know, from, from my teenage years up through my adulthood. And so obviously there were some people that had some pretty significant influence on me. And yeah, th- there's no doubt about it. But in a sense, maybe the whole Navy SEAL, the whole program was kind of like a mentor for It's you. true, but you got to remember that SEALs are people. Yeah. They're, they're, not, they're not Terminator robots. They're, they're normal people. And there's good SEALs 
and there's bad SEALs. And there's SEALs that are great leaders and there's SEALs that are bad leaders. What's a bad SEAL? Someone who's aggressive, someone you wouldn't trust in battle. Do they make it through sometimes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you do? No, but just so you know, being aggressive doesn't make you a bad SEAL. No, it might make <laughs> but, you a great SEAL, but, but can, Yeah, can you be too aggressive? Yeah, you can be too aggressive. But most of the time you'll get reined in a little bit. But, yeah, someone that's a bad SEAL, someone that cares more about themselves than they do about the team. Really? Yeah. How do they get weeded out, if at all? Well, during training, they're the type of person that takes care of themselves, right? So they're able to weasel their way through. And, you know, one time I was working for an admiral, and he said to me, you know, the, the program will guarantee that you're at least get good guys are coming through. They're at least tough guys. And I said, yeah, well, it also, it, I said, it guarantees two things, that the guy is either tough or the guy figures out a good way to weasel his way through. Yeah. So there are guys like that. You know, everybody's got every... Every organization in the world has their 10% of, you know, low end of the bell curve. Got them in the SEAL teams. Do they get, like, in, war, in like, World War I or World War II, guys like that would get shot in the back of the head Some every once in a while, like a bad officer that was forcing their men to charge in. All of a sudden, he would... That probably doesn't happen quite as much anymore. But that used to happen. No, uh, I they think, just kind of disappear. <clears throat> oh, he died in battle. Yeah. In, in his sleep. No, they, they you know, they had, that, they had that problem in Vietnam for sure. Yeah. Plus, you had draftees that weren't as, you know, dedicated to the mission as a guy might be today. Again, not taking anything away from the millions of draftees that fought during Vietnam with pride and sacrificed their lives. So I'm not saying anything negative, but it was definitely a different culture yeah. when you had people that hadn't volunteered. You know, it's an all-volunteer service right now. And the SEAL teams is like, you volunteered once, now you're volunteering again. Do you think, is that part of it, visualization? Do you think that's overrated or do you think that's where you're sitting there in your own head saying, I will make it through, I will make it through, I will make, overcoming your fear just with, just like talking to yourself? Uh, I never did that kind of thing. No. No, I was just busy getting after it. So I wasn't saying, oh, please please make it through, make it through. No, I was making it through. You didn't visualize. At night you just went to bed because you were tired. Yeah, I was tired. (laughs) <laughs> so no gimmick, no no exact gimmick. Sometimes I feel like all of us humans, we like, we want some magic bullet that someone mm-hmm. gives us, some Dumbo's feather, and like, oh, I got that, and now I'll never procrastinate, and now, but then you realize life isn't that simple. No, if it was that easy, right? Everyone would be not procrastinating. Everyone would have discipline. What time do you wake up? Uh, who was asked this? Connor Dempsey. I wake up at four thirty. Okay, so he said, will Jocko still wake up at 4.30 tomorrow? You're damn right. <laughs> so do you think that that's important? That's a, that's a really good root of discipline, yeah. just personal discipline. Get up, get out of bed. You know why? Because let's face it, where's Zach at? Zach likes that warm pillow, right? There you he go, likes, Zach. He likes cuddling up in his bed. And when the <laughs> alarm clock goes off, he doesn't want to get out of bed. Right. He wants, he gets, wants to snuggle with his pillow a little while longer. So that is the first act in the morning that takes a little bit of discipline. And when you make that good decision, right. let's face it, when you make that good decision, you get up and you go, let's say, go work out, which is what I recommend, yeah. you feel better. And now that sets you up for the rest of the day. The rest of the day starts feeling better. Now, when you get done, you woke up early, you worked out, you get in your office here, and someone brought in donuts. Are you going to eat one? Right. You're less likely. You're less you're likely to because you're feeling good. Yeah. So you're not going to eat that donut. Yeah. No, not going to do it. What time do you go to bed? Usually around 11. Okay. So five hours, five, six hours yeah, you five, can do? Five, yeah, five and a half. Have you always been that way? Yeah, there's, some, there's definitely some genetic aspects to it. Like I have one, my oldest daughter. Yeah. 
I would go to bed at 11 o'clock, she'd be up studying, yeah. and I'd wake up at 4.30 and she'd be up studying. So huh. she's genetic. But my middle daughter... You mean, is she more of a night owl? or She, she just goes, doesn't sleep. Okay. She doesn't need much sleep, kind of like me. My middle daughter, she can sleep. She gets her yeah. sleep on. She'll go to sleep at 8 and wake up at 7. Yeah. You know? That's kind of like my wife. My wife's a big sleeper. So people she say, got oh, the you, mom people side. People say, oh, do, you make, do you make your bed in the morning? <laughs> no, because my wife's still in it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I know there's that Navy Admiral where he posted the thing, you want to change the world? Make your bed. Yeah. Joseph, this is a good question. Do you as a Marine ever question the war? Like the ethics, because like we were talking about, I read this book, The Battle of Quezon in Vietnam. It's just this, the, one of the toughest battles in modern history. It was General Westmoreland who was leading uh, the U.S. forces in Vietnam. He thought it was so important. Most of the soldiers thought it was just an out-of-the-way hill that didn't matter, and yet they were sacrificing their life for it. What do you think, let's say this, ethically, do you think there's ever a time a soldier can just go, nope, I'm not, char-. World War One? they'd be like, charge over here, even though 90% of you are going to get killed in five seconds. Do you think it's ever a soldier's right to just say, nope, I'm not doing it, or do you do your duty? Be- beyond it's a soldier's right, it's a soldier's responsibility, especially as a leader, that if you're doing something that doesn't make sense, to put a stop to it. Yeah, and I always tell people, World War, I'd go fight in any war because I'm a warrior, right? That's what, that's what I trained to do, and I'd go fight in any war. The war I wouldn't want to go fight in is World War I. Yeah. Because World War I, they hadn't gotten to the point yet where they looked differently at tactics, and they hadn't made the leap to say, you know what, we can do things differently. Yeah. And, and no one would stand up and say, hey, boss, this plan right here doesn't make sense, and we shouldn't do it again. We did it. Last week, the week before, the week before that, we lost 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 men. Sometimes they lost a million, the Psalm and some of these battles. Verdun. And no one said, hey, why are we doing this? Stop. So, you know, and, and, but like Napoleon, Napoleon said, if you execute a plan that you know is wrong as the leader, you've been ordered to do it. If you execute that plan, you're culpable. Huh. You're responsible, you're culpable, you're guilty. As guilty as the person that ordered you. But does and, that mess up the chain of command? No, because an officer no. maybe doesn't know let what me, the let general Let me tell you why. Let me tell you okay. why. Because if you're my boss and you tell me to do something and I realize that it's not a smart plan, do you want me to go do something that's stupid? Right. No. You want me to come back and say, hey, Ty, this doesn't make any sense. Let's do it a different way. Yeah. Now, are there times... Which, which is where you were heading with your question. Like, are there times where you just need to be like, hey, we need to take that now. Yeah. And I got to go execute it. Yes. And then it becomes, you know, those are the critical situations in war where you've got to make that decision. Like, okay, I'm going to trust that Ty has a great plan, that he knows that this, is, that this is valuable. Now, we built a relationship. I worked for you for two years. I know that you will take care of me. I know that you care about me and my men. When you tell me, look, it's got to be done, I trust you. Yeah. And I'll go do it because I trust you because we built that relationship. If I don't know you, you just showed up in theater and you don't know what's going on and you decide you're going to order me and my guys to do something that I see as a huge risk, I'm going to raise my hand and say, hey, boss, here's what's going on. You need to know about this. You need to know about this other thing. You need to know about how the enemy reacts to this. And now we have a discussion. You're going to learn something. You just got here. 
If you're smart, you'll say, okay, I get it. Let's hold off. Let's figure out a different way. And that's the real way the military works. You don't want to be surrounded by yes men. Just like in business, do you want to be surrounded by yes men in business? No, you don't. You don't want to be surrounded by yes men in the military either at all. You want to be surrounded by people that are going to raise their hand and say, hey, boss, I got a better way. So you think from World War I to now, the military is much more open to people going, listen to me. I'm on the ground. This isn't the greatest plan. But you did say that you think now under Trump versus Obama that they're giving more leeway to people on the ground to make some decisions. Trump is, Trump is absolutely utilizing decentralized command. You know, yeah. Does that make him the, the standard of people in the world? No. I'm telling you that what he's doing with decentralized command in the military is, has been very effective thus far, especially with the people that he brought in to run the military for him, and he's letting them run it. Yeah. He's not micromanaging. You talked about Westmoreland. They were making decisions back in Washington right. for what was going on in Vietnam, and that was the, one of the biggest problems of that war. Yeah. That, and they were trying to run the war utilizing metrics. Yes. Which, this is an interesting thing, you know, when, we, when, when I work with businesses, there's some people that they get so addicted to metrics that they forget about the human aspect of what's going on. And you might be getting great metrics from what you're doing, but you're driving your people into the ground and now your organization's gonna fall apart. Hey, your metrics were great. You were, you know, you were up three quarters in a row. Profitability was through the roof, but you broke your people. Yeah. And now the fourth quarter, what happens? A bunch of people leave, you have untrained people running it, everything the the, the, the wheels fall off. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, it's like Life is part art and part science. The science is the metrics, and the art is like that gut call mm-hmm. that you have to make. Yeah, Westmoreland, Vietnam, I mean, when the Tet Offensive came, he denied it was, he said it was just some diversion when that was the actual real battle. And then he said Quezon's the real battle, and it was it was more of a, he got it completely backwards. So. Yeah. Polaris says, Ty, ask Jocko, what was the most frightening thing you ever experienced? The most frightening thing for me was being in Ramadi. And, you know, I was the commander. I was in charge. And so most of the time, a lot of the time, guys would be going out in operations. I had five different elements out in the field. I wouldn't be going with them. The scariest thing for me was watching those guys roll out of the gate because there was soldiers and Marines getting wounded and killed every single day. And when you see those guys rolling out, when I see my guys rolling out, my friends, my brothers knowing the risk that they were facing and the biggest fear I would have every single time was one of my guys were going to get wounded or killed. Yeah, so the responsibility of leadership was frightening. Yeah, I mean, I never, I never really even cared. Like, I wouldn't think about myself, oh, I'm going to get wounded, I'm going to get killed. I, I wouldn't think about that because, yeah. you know, if it happens, it happens. I was at peace with that. I accepted it as a, as a possibility of what I signed up for. And I was good with it. And so once you're not afraid of dying, yeah. well, then you're not really afraid anymore. So what are you really afraid of? What you're afraid of is you're afraid for your guys. How about that camaraderie? Have you ever been able to replicate how strong a ties you felt to your men with other friendships and as a civilian? No. Is that one of the things that people, you know, let me see, my grandma's brother died in, in World War II. And my grandma's German. And he had the opportunity to not be in the army, but she said he she didn't care about the war. He just loved his men, and he got shot on the Russian front in the stomach. He died there, and um, 
that camaraderie. She's like, he was willing to literally, he could go in a situation where he had no chance of dying, leave the army, or stay in and have a high chance of being shot. And I guess that camaraderie, tell me about that. Like, is that a feeling? Do you still have that with the men that you're, no, you know, you're yeah. retired now? Yeah, I'm retired, and but it's always going to be there. Yeah. And I mean, I have a company out called Echelon Front, and guess what it is? It's a, it's a bunch of my buddies that I served with. Really? And yeah, and we're still together. We have a, a we have a new we have a new gang, you know. And but that's what we do. And the reason is because that's a strong bond. And it, and it's you know it's not just with the SEAL team guys. It's with the Marines that we work with, with the Army soldiers that we work with. And so yeah, it's it's hard to replace, and you can't replace it. At least I don't think you can replace it. So what I did is just kind of carried it on. That's good. I feel like what makes you happy in life is to be around people that you know have your back, would die for you, things like that. That There's a lot. People underestimate that. I feel like in the modern corporate world, you just throw a whole bunch of people together, don't really care about each other, and then people can't figure out why they're not happy. Well, that's social. Your social circle determines happiness a lot. Well, yeah, we're, we're pack animals, and you're part of a tribe. And when you're part of a tribe... You know, you feel you feel good when you're with your with, with when you're with the rest of your tribe. Yeah, it feels good for sure. Yeah, that's good. Let me take some more. Someone says, "Okay, we're gonna put a link. If you go to tylopez.com/jocko, J-O-C-K-O, that'll redirect you to links for his podcast. You've got a top podcast now. You've got three best-selling books. This is one I posted. I haven't read these two. I've read." I haven't finished this one, but this one I haven't. Way of the Warrior. This is a not. This is a fiction. Yeah. But it's a story. There's an allegory. Is this for kids or yeah, for adults for too? It's for kids. But I've gotten incredible feedback from adults that read that book and made some significant changes in their lives, talking about overcoming things like procrastination and stuff. Yeah. Discipline equals freedom. Yeah, for sure. A lot of these books for like Warren Buffett had a book for kids, and that's where I got the saying the more you learn, the more you earn, which kind of went viral as like a meme. I'm like, that was a book for first graders, but most adults still don't know it. Mm -hmm. Discipline equals freedom. They don't teach that in school anymore. If you could, so here's a question. If you could change, because you've got how many kids? Four kids. Four kids. If you could change the education system, go back in time for yourself, for your kids, what are you going to do? Are you going to make it more military-like? Are you going to... What, what are some ideas you have off the top of your head? It's, it's an interesting dichotomy because what I would do is, yes, I would make it more military-like, but I would also make it involve more art along the way and more creation of things. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's another thing that people, another misconception that people have about the military is that it stifles creativity. But the, the opposite is actually true. If you are on the battlefield you have to be creative to figure out how you're going to accomplish missions, how you're going to defeat the enemy, how you're going to lead your people. You have to got to be creative for all those things. So yeah, I would definitely make it more pragmatic as well. I would make it more physical mm-hmm. because kids should not be, you know, sitting at a desk for eight hours a day. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You got kids? No. No. Kids should not be sitting at a desk for eight hours a day. But I was a kid. Yeah. I remember. You know the deal. Kids should be out moving. Yes. Kids should be out moving. Kids should be doing jujitsu. Kids should be building tree houses. Kids should be cutting down sticks and turning them into swords. And that kids should be doing that. And at the same time, they should learn about hard work. Yeah. 
And then from the educational side, this is the part that I think gets messed up is they teach English, they teach history, they teach math, they teach science, but they teach them as separate subjects. Mm. But as you get older, you realize that all those subjects are intertwined throughout history. Right. And if you have that common thread, if you can get a hold of that common thread, then you can tie all those subjects together and they actually make more sense because they're a whole story. Yeah. So I would do that too. Hi, I'm Arusha Pires, host of a new podcast called Investing with IBD. Here are a few snippets from the conversations that we're having. Facebook, you know, it's coming back. I was really treating it as a counter trend kind of stock. You have these really fast moving stocks. You want to have a little bit slower moving stocks yeah, also definitely. in your portfolio. What Bill observed after sitting through many market corrections is that the market will come down, but you need to wait a few days and see if there's going to be continued power. And that's where he came up with the follow through day concept. One of the most interesting things is, you know, utilities have actually been very, very strong over the last 52 weeks. The work that we've done on yield curve inversion suggests that after the yield curve inverts, over the next year, utility performance is actually not that good. Come join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.